Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, recently I've heard a little bit from Abigail Disney. Now, Abigail is actually the granddaughter of Roy Disney. Roy Disney, of course, was Walt's brother. And uh, Roy's son was Roy E. Disney, and he worked on the board of directors for the Disney company when Michael Eisner was the chairman and CEO. So... Abigail has a strong connection to the Disney company, a lot of mixed feelings about the company, certainly, but has a long history because she's a family member and she understands the history of Disney and what's been left behind, sort of that legacy, like I talk about in my podcast. You know, the thing about Disney is they understand the legacy that's been left. And it seems like, to a degree, they're sort of missing some of that legacy piece at the moment. So she went on and uh, she was talking to uh, KCRW's The Business Podcast, and it's a pretty good podcast in its own right, but um, she went on there and I heard her speak and I thought it was worth bringing in a few of her comments to my podcast and discussing them a little bit to see what I think about some of the things she says. Now, for the most part, I have to say I agree with her. There are some things that I'm a little bit less warm and fuzzy about what she says. She's a little... I won't use the word harsh because she's not. She's, she's caring and supportive and she wants the company to succeed for her own personal reasons, of course. But also, she sees some of the failings of, of the company and uh, wants to kind of bring those to light. So I thought it was worth talking about, about those things just because it's kind of interesting and relevant. Now, I had planned to bring you some other stuff about some, uh, some other historical attraction, but I thought this was more interesting and more relevant in a way. Um, just because it sums up some of the things that are happening. So I would highly recommend you go check out the business podcast. It's KCRW. I present some comments here. These are not anything that I got talking to or anything like that. This is just some strict excerpts from it. I'll put a link in my show notes page to uh, and the description to the podcast so you can go and listen to the original. Um, really interesting stuff. They've got an interesting view of the business world. Um, it's worth listening to. It's uh, It's kind of Uh, kind of intriguing. You might learn a little something about the business world in addition to learning something about uh, the Disney company. So anyway, uh, she starts off her interview talking about uh, the current state of the company. And she talks about Bob Iger and how Bob's got an interesting perspective on the company. He was an acquirer rather than uh, somebody who was coming up with original content. So in the Walt Disney Company history, it was always about creating content. It was about the Imagineering. It was about creative creativity. It was about creating something that was unique and truly Disney. Walt was big on creating something that was unique, and uh, sometimes he'd have to buy something to create that uniqueness, like when he uh, made the agreement to uh, buy Mary Poppins or the rights to Mary Poppins or when he bought some of the franchises along the way or the rights to use some of these franchises. Michael Eisner did similar things when he was 
in power because he was creating a media empire and he was trying to create new properties. He created, he did buy some old fables and created some great animation stories with uh, The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and so on. So those kinds of things were interesting. But but here's Bob Iger and he had a different approach to things because he purchases things, right? He, he purchased uh, ABC, ESPN. Uh, actually, I think Michael Eisner did that if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he purchased, uh, you know, Fox properties. He f- purchased Star Wars. He purchased Pixar. All of those things happened under uh, Iger. And, you know, her take on it was, generally speaking, this is, you know, this is not sustainable uh, as far as that goes. You need your own intellectual sort of capital and to create your own content, right? It's, it's about what you create and how you do things. You can't just rest on the past. You have to actually be creative. And that's, what, that's how the company will, has succeeded in the past and will continue to succeed. Then she talked a little bit about the, um, the change from Bob Iger to uh, Bob Chapek. And her take on it was, you know, Chapek had never run a company. He'd never done any creative sort of works. He'd never done anything where he could really lead the company in a new direction. This was about stewardship and just continuing the acquisition channel and continuing to do things. And she was a little curious about the timing, you know, with uh, Iger leaving just before the pandemic hit. She had a few comments about that. It was kind of interesting. But it was just an interesting perspective when you stop and think about it that that was kind of where she was going with it. There was a lot of, uh, you know, things that happened in the company that she doesn't agree with necessarily because what happened to the intellectual part of it? What happened to the creative part? Where did that all go? First up, she talks a lot about the corporate pay structure and how low-level employees, the people who were the cast members uh, at the parks and so forth, are the ones that get the greatest impact. So let's take a listen to what she had to say. I know that when I try to draw a line, a direct line between how the C-suite is paid and how the hourly workers are paid, when I try to draw a direct line between those things, I think they look at me like I'm speaking in some kind of alien language because to them, that's just the dumbest thing they've ever heard. There's no relationship between what we pay, you know, a line worker and a shift worker and and what we pay Bob Iger. You know, he's the genius and the only person on earth who could accomplish what's been accomplished here and therefore give him what he's asking for. You know, I actually was doing a little math this morning and last year the bonuses amounted to almost $100 million for just the top named executives there wow. in the in, at the very top of the pile. And I know that when the letter went out about the layoffs, it included lines about how your end date is December 31st, but we're telling you this in the beginning of November. If you find a job between November 2nd and December 31st, you won't get your severance pay. Wow. Yeah. I mean, nickel and diming people. When if you if you took that hundred million dollars and look at thirty two thousand laid off employees, you know everybody could get a nice three thousand dollar plus check yeah. um, out of that. If you cut that in half, they'd get a fifteen hundred dollar check out of it. You know more than what the government is giving out. I mean, there's no reason on earth that justifies that. And part of the problem is that they keep claiming it's performance based pay, but they don't include how their employees are doing in the idea of how they're performing as executives. And that is the real problem. There's a moral disconnect, and we just keep waving it through because this is what business schools tell us is how it's done. 
And I'm saying, like, just it's time to do it differently, and I don't care what the business school says. And, you know, people always are like, but they have to run a company, and you don't understand it. That's so complicated. And I'm like, well, no, it's, it's, some things are not complicated. You have costs and you have revenues, right? And if you can't, with these costs, get to the revenues you need to be at, then you go back and you move some stuff around. And the moving part that they always go for first is what compensation for the lowest people. Um, And I say, we just stop making that a moving part because there's a certain level below which you cannot go in the name of human decency, Mm. you know, and, and it tends to come in a package. The high, high, high compensation at the top tends to go as a reward for pushing down on the compensation at the bottom. One reason, you know, Iger is being paid so handsomely is, is not just because of the share price, but because of the margins, right? Mm-hmm. Because he's been able to push the cost of running the parts down while also milking it for massive amounts of profit, historic profit. So he's a really good manager, like I say, but he's a good manager in the Milton Friedman sense. Maybe we'll we'll change the the avatar. A good manager in the Ebenezer Scrooge sense, and not not in the sense of of a person who sees everyone who works for him as a full human being with equal right to dignity. It's interesting. She talks a lot about corporate pay, and this is a problem that's bigger than Disney, obviously. There's a lot of companies who have this same compensation problem where they give the, the most amount of money to the people at the top, and that's always challenging, right? How do, you, how do you deal with the people at the lowest level, the people that deal with the customers every day, the, the cast members who run the attraction, the people who get your food, the people who do the work, who clean the, you know, clean the bathrooms? Those are the people who make the company run. You know, the one thing I remember walking away from traditions uh, training was that they told us, you know, you are the magic. You're the reason that we're successful. And that's always stuck with me. And every time I go back to the parks, I remember that, that I look at the people that are working there, the cast members who I interact with. Those are the people who are making the magic. It's not the, at the time, Michael Eisner or the Bob Igers or anyone else. It's, it's the people that are working every day. Those are the people you see. Those are the people who make your magic. So you have to remember that. And they've been with the, some of them have been with the company for a long time. Uh, and it's interesting to kind of stop and think about how this, how this performance works because maybe the business schools are wrong. Maybe we have a bigger problem. If you look back to the 2008 housing crisis and the fallout from that, you realize that a lot of uh, companies say, well, we have to pay out our senior executives. We have to give them the money for, um, for their bonuses. Otherwise, they might leave and go to another company. And you have to stop and think about that. They're the ones who drove the company into essentially bankruptcy or to get a bailout or whatever it was in that housing crisis sense. And you're worried about them leaving, but yet they destroyed your company from the inside. Wow. Okay. You know, it's sort of a, a, a weird philosophy that we have about business and the way we think about our, our um, the executives of companies. So I think she's right on principle that we need to rethink this and we need to kind of uh, think about how we how we consider our employees our cast members and how they're compensated so just sort of as a level set this is where she's coming from right she sees it as hey you know why couldn't we have given as a company and she's using the name disney uh, i don't think that she's talking about um, herself here but why couldn't we have given people more and handed them you know some amount of money or kept them employed for some period of time rather than paying out some huge bonuses to senior executives she goes on to talk about the norms and sort of the the way we think about our corporate culture in some ways 
But, but one of the outside forces that pushed the whole business world in this direction was norms and culture. And I know that sounds like such a wobbly, non-concrete thing, and it is, and it's a hard thing to measure and track and point at. But it is clearly much of what's driving this. You know, my grandfather, you know, made a lot of money and he provided for me, even provided for my children. Of course, you know, no, he wasn't shy about taking compensation. The two things were very different from him and a contemporary CEO. You know, Bob Iger spent his lifetime on a salary. Right, he doesn't own. Well, not just own, but risk. That's right. what I'm talking about. Mm, okay. Okay, Got so not, I'm not talking about ownership. I'm talking about are you willing to put everything you have in hawk again and again and again and again, every single time with the chance of losing everything to keep this company going? Because that's what my grandfather did. And so if he came home with the big bucks, I would say he earned them. Right. Um, and, you know, he would never have taken a $66 million payday, never, mm. especially knowing what was happening at the low end for his employees. And not because he was a perfect guy, but it wasn't done. It just wasn't done. There was no law against it. People did not do that then. And, and people had pensions and security when they worked for a company. Exactly. And when I think about these people who are left now high and dry at 50, 55, and laid off from one of these parks after 14, 15 years. And during that time, they were paid barely enough to pay the rent. They don't own anything. They barely have enough food on the table. And then that's it. It's over. They get a little severance package because they were good and they didn't take another job. And now where are they going to go? People are starting to starve. So, so let's not pretend that they go somewhere and disappear. No, they go somewhere. They lose their houses. They're homeless. And they, and they have to steal things to eat. I thought this was one of the more compelling arguments uh, in her conversation. And it's that she's talking about the fact that, you know, you really, Walt and Roy really risked everything to create the Walt Disney Company. It was about having the, the determination and this drive to create something. And they created something that was just an amazing company that really went in a direction that I don't think anyone ever saw coming. They believed in themselves so much that they did risk everything to get there. And she talks later on about sort of how they worked together and the things that they did. But the principle here is you, you have to, you know, in order to understand the company, you really have to understand the risks they took to get to this point. And the fact that they were willing to believe in the company. The corporate culture has changed dramatically. This is not the same company that Walt built, Walt and Roy built. This is a different company. Things have, you know, are just completely different. The, the way the compensation works and all of these things is, is troubling in a way. And if you think about the fact that Walt and Roy always viewed all of the employees, all of the cast members, everyone who worked for the studios, everyone who worked for the parks as family, there's a reason that everyone wears their name tag, including Walt and Roy, because he wants everyone to call each other by the first name. By their first name because you are part of a family, you're part of something bigger. And you're wearing the name tag because you can approach anybody. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO or you're, you're some low-level employee who, um, who uh, pushes the broom on Main Street. You're all the same. You're equal in the eyes of uh, the company in terms of you know, having a say and being able to talk up and being, a, being valued in some way. That's what it was all about. And that's what, what one of the things that fascinated me about working for the company was that everyone was that way. Now, Michael Eisner started to evolve that a little bit, and he didn't have everyone wear their name tags necessarily if they were in the corporate offices. He didn't always wear his when he went out. 
you know, it was one of those things where he sort of changed that. And it's evolved a lot over time. But I can remember when I was in college, there was a, uh, there was a group of Disney um, uh, engineers who came to see us about the project we were working on. Uh, what it was is sort of trivial. But they came in and all of them came into the, to the, um, the conference room we were in and all of them were wearing their name tags. They weren't in a Disney meeting. They weren't at Walt Disney World. They were there to meet with us, but they were all wearing their name, name tags. That was really cool to me because they were part of something bigger. They were part of this family. They were part of this whole package of people that worked together for a common goal. And we seem to have, the company seems to have lost its way in that sense. And I get what she's saying. You know, Roy would have never taken the $66 million. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, you know, because... You know, Bob Iger is not risking anything here. He's just going along with the company saying, hey, I'm going to buy this property and do these things. And I, I find that interesting. It's kind of a compelling thing that she's talking about there. And, you know, then there's the other piece to it. It's the, the bigger socioeconomic piece. You know, you could look at it from a lot of different perspectives. But, you know, here's people who have fallen through the system, basically. You know, they're no longer employed by the Disney company. They're no longer qualify for unemployment. What do they do next? What does a person do? So you walked into the Magic Kingdom and you saw the person who was a little older, who was um, standing there, standing at the door waving at you. You know, when you walked in, they're the person waving. And they're no longer there. Where do they go from there? What do they do next? You know, they, they got their little compensation from being laid off. They got some unemployment insurance from the state. That's it. You know, now what? What do they go do? You know, there's not a lot of jobs out there that are looking for people in, in a certain age range that um, will pay decent wages where you could go to work again. So I, I get where she's coming from. So you got to think about the fact that so many people were laid off and so many people had to go their different, different ways. And Disney hasn't rehired a lot of them. So there's still a, a gap there. And then she goes into a little more detail around that. And she talks about her father, Roy E., who was the uh, on the board working with Michael Eisner and uh, give some more context. A little tiny part of me, now I'm going to risk sounding like a megalomaniac, but a little <laughs> tiny part of me sees this as a little bit of an extension of my father's work because I don't believe the company and the magic can survive this kind of corporate behavior. I don't think that the brand, as, as solid gold as it is, will last. And I think it's the kind of brand that's so in, enormous and all-encompassing and people invest so much into it, um, I don't think it'll erode slowly. It will, you know, fall over like a great sequoia. And then what will that company be? I mean, what would you value those assets at if that brand dies? So, you know, I'm a little bit about saving the company over the, over the long term. I mean, I think the company needs to be saved from itself. That's a pretty strong statement that the company needs to be saved from itself. I don't know what to take away from that exactly. In a way, she's, I know she's right, you know, empirically, you know, that the corporation can only stand for so long kind of on its own. It needs guidance and stewardship and it needs the creative spirit. So perhaps she's right, but I just don't know. And now she goes a little deeper into how the uh, intellectual property comes around, that IP, um, and how Disney doesn't have that sort of creative spirit that it once had. When you talk about when when creative companies refer to the you know product or whatever as IP, it makes me sad too, right? Because something in the creative process is it's like alchemy, right? That somebody yes. comes along with a vision, no one else can do what they do, and what they do is extraordinary. And then to make that subservient to 
um, and to treat it like just the salami at the deli, you lose something really important. And, and so creative companies will very often kind of crest and then die, crest and then die, because they get to be so successful business-wise that they can't figure out how to make that coexist well so that it doesn't kill the creativity. And, yes. and Disney has solved that problem by buying creativity, but they can't do that forever. And they need to figure out how to live with creativity and to venerate the creatives in a way more than they've been venerating up till now their executives. Salami at a deli is kind of a funny reference. It makes me kind of chuckle. But I get what she's saying. You know, it's, it's, that, it's the whole commoditization of things. I remember uh, hearing about a company that was trying to uh, partner with another company. And the one company says to the other, well, we could just replace you. You're like ketchup. You know, we could just get another brand of ketchup. And... You know, this is the problem that we kind of lose sight of what happens as 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 a um, as people, and how we all should be working together for the you know the sort of the common good. And in the Disney sense, you know, what do they do? How do they create do creations if they don't have creative people and they're just buying property? Now, I'll give them credit because you know you take something like the property of Star Wars and you're creating something very very creative in the Mandalorian, or when you start talking about um, some of the things they're doing in the Marvel universe. Those are really creative, you know, and you start to realize that they do have the ability to do it, but, you know, can they sustain it? I don't know. You know, now they've got this slate of a whole bunch of Star Wars uh, novelizations or, you know, movies or shows they're going to make, and that's terrific, but can they sustain it beyond that? What happens after those run their course? So that's the question. And then, of course, she talks about how risk and uh, the sort of the company direction as far as creativity kind of merged together in a way, or butt heads, I guess, is probably a better way to say it. In this business, there's this tension that is perpetual between the executives who are trained as business people to think about mitigating risk, right? And then you have creatives, and all they do is risk. If without risk, they can't function. And so, you know, you have to find executives of a special kind who can understand and respect what risk means and figure out a way to make it live inside of a profit-making company. And what you have is the victory of the executives in Disney. So that's the nature of the risk. And that's, that's what she's concerned about is that you can't continue to create uh, creative things and do new things if you're not willing to take a risk. And now we get to one of the thornier parts of her interview where she talks about the fact that the theme parks are open and that uh, there's a vaccine on the horizon, so perhaps things will change for the company. And listen to what she has to say, and I'll talk about it in a second. No, I don't think the themes, especially now. So yeah, we've got a vaccine on the way, and that's great, but it's going to take months before it's really broadly enough distributed to, in fact, really mitigate risk. And the risk, let's not forget, was to their employees But it was also to all the people who came from all these different places around the world and then went back to wherever they were coming from. So it was was not just the risk of the employees, but also the risk of just continually seeding new colonies of infections. So I know that Florida has been open for a while and everybody says non-eventfully so, but there have been reports that some you know, cases among employees have been suppressed. I don't know that to be true. That was other reports. Um, but, you know, Florida proved itself to be something of a show. So um, I don't know that Florida should have opened. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. This is a really horrible, horrible thing for a theme park, you know, to have to close like this. And yes. 
you know, obviously revenues are getting destroyed. But just this morning in the paper, they're talking about how, well, the streaming services are going to lose seven, eight billion dollars over the next few years, but then they're going to be incredibly profitable. And so their share prices go up. How is it that they have seven, eight billion dollars in their pocket to invest in something mechanical and technical, but they don't have one billion dollars to support their employees while they get back to the full operating size? Mm -hmm. Why are they shifting the burden of their employees, frankly, onto us taxpayers? Because that's what they're doing. When they lay people off, and then they're going to go back and rehire, um, and they will weed out the ones that were problematic and weed out the ones that were old and weed out the ones who were senior when they start hiring people back because that saves them all kinds of money and trouble. And in the meantime, what they've done is they've shifted the burden of people's hunger and people's housing and people's safety and health onto the taxpayer. So, you know, we're all willing to look at them lose money in the name of an eventual profit when we're losing the money on making films and finding subscribers, but we're not willing to lose that money on retaining employees and looking after their well-being. There are really two parts to what she's saying here. The first has to do with the state of Florida and the way it's reporting its own numbers. There's been a lot of information that's been reported about this. There's been several articles written, uh, long-form articles. There's a lot of um, stuff that's been written around the edges, you know, a lot of blogger space used up this way. But essentially, the governor of Florida uh, doesn't want to believe in the science of what's happening and would prefer that the state remain open. You know, you may remember that back in March when we didn't shut down the same way other states did, he did a victory dance because he's like, look, I was right, you were wrong, blah, blah, blah. And then it turned out the, num- the ca- number of cases went up shortly after that. So, you know, this is the way things go. And it's, it's political as much as anything. And there was a whole thing re- regarding the person who created the, um, the website that uh, showed the number of cases and the number of deaths, and he didn't like it because she was reporting fact-based information that was based on scientific information, right? And uh, he wanted it to be more political in a sense, so he kind of morphed the numbers a little bit, and she wound up getting fired, and there's a whole suit that's pending about her and whatever. You know, there's more to that story. But the fact of the matter is, the numbers that are being reported in Florida may or may not be accurate. He's not embracing science, he, the governor, is not embracing science and is trying to tell us stories and trying to get businesses running. And while I appreciate what he's saying because he's trying to help in some way um, businesses to remain open, he's not really helping with the pandemic in a sense. So the numbers we see may or may not be accurate. Now, Abigail says something specifically about she had heard that maybe the number of cases uh, among cast members uh, especially and some guests may not be right. And so I did a little research into this because I wanted to know what's the story here. And it turns out that the first part of that has to do with the fact that the numbers may be underreported. You're hearing from the state the fact that there have been no confirmed cases related to Disney. Disney uses that in their materials, you know, when they're talking to people saying, hey, we haven't had any reported cases, but they're relying on the state to give them that information. They don't look at their cast members. Somebody calls out sick, they call out sick. Whether they're gone for a day, an hour, a week, a month, doesn't matter. They're out sick, right, as far as that goes. So they don't use that because they can't assume what the person has. So, you know, Disney is using that. The other part to the problem is that someone comes from somewhere else. Let's say they come from, I'll just use South Dakota, and they come to Walt Disney World, and they go to the park, and let's say they happen to contract the virus while they're there. So they're there for, you know, five days. And during that time, they contract the virus somehow. 
they leave the Disney park, they go back to uh, South Dakota, and then within 10 days after that, they test positive. So there is no um, formal sort of um, contract tracing to know that they were at the Disney park when they contracted it. They are counted as having had it in South Dakota, but the um, Florida does not record that case in any way because there's no contact tracing. So to say that there are no cases associated with Disney, it turns out, is a little bit disingenuous. Yeah, it's good that there is nothing confirmed that has come through Disney, but there seems to be some anecdotal evidence that suggests that people are getting it and taking it back to wherever they come from. But again, without good contact tracing, we'll never know. So that's the, that's the crux of the problem there, is that we just don't know really what's happening. So the vaccine may help. And in the meantime, Disneyland has now been closed for, uh, well, 10 months now, I think, or nine, a little over nine months, you know, and, and has no plans to reopen anytime in the near future. Disney World arguably should have never reopened. So, you know, there's, there's the, the challenge there. What do you do from here? Where do you go? And I don't know what the answer is. I'm just, I find it interesting that she, she brought it to light because I hadn't really thought about it this way. Then the second part to what she said there had to do with the financial gains. And I find it really interesting. You know, they had to lay off 28,000 cast members because they needed to save money. But yet, as she points out, they are willing to risk $7 billion in losses on Disney Plus. And that's okay. And everyone goes, yeah, all right. And the stock price goes up. How does that happen? How do we let people get laid off? And that's okay because the corporate profits need to be, can't be sacrificed. It's something strange about that. And it, she's, she's right in principle that, that there's something odd going on there. What that is, you know, could you give some of that money back to your cast members and keep them employed instead of losing money on your streaming service? Yeah, I know the streaming service is going to be very important to the company, company strategically somewhere down the line. But for today, if this had been a different time when you were willing to lose that money on the streaming service and you didn't have to lay off cast members, okay, you know, sounds good. That's fine. You can do that. But when you have to do that, again, it's back to not risking anything. You're just saying, hey, we're going to do this and that's okay, right? There's something very odd about that in the way that the Disney company kind of goes about their business and we get these situations where there's, you know, there's, there's these oddities happening. And this is why I'm so conflicted about Disney right now and going back to the theme parks and doing things, forgetting about the virus, virus itself for a minute. It's about the bigger picture. There's more happening here than meets the eyes. This is... These are my brethren. These are the people that I respect, uh, that I used to work with. I, you know, was a cast member. I, I get it. The job is the job is great, and it sucks all at the same time. Just because the hours and the pay isn't the best, but it's better than most companies. So you take that and you go, "Wow, I can you know I can do something good, and <clears throat> I can contribute to someone else's magic." There's something to be said for that. But if you're taking that away, now what? So anyway, that was just my take on what she had to say there. Oh, and one other thing about Walt Disney World opening, and I've talked about this before, and this has to do with the number of timeshares that Walt Disney World has on it, and the fact that there was no state mandate or federal mandate that said that they had to remain closed uh, in some way due to you know the act of God or the act of nature clause or whatever it is. Um, so they had to reopen. So in order to avoid any legal complications or having to pay out to people or having to uh, extend people's timelines or change the rules around all of their point system and things that are going on, Disney decided it was in its own best interest to just go ahead and reopen the timeshares and allow them for use. 
because that's what it's going to come down to. People need to be able to use them and use their points in order to, uh, uh, to uh, avoid any legal complications around the whole timeshare business. So Disney put itself in a legal bind there because of the fact that they, they, uh, they have these timeshares and they couldn't just close them. Now they were stuck and they had to open them. So that's w- at least one reason that the Walt Disney World Resort is open. And, you know, if you're providing this and you have in your contracts that you have to provide some amount of entertainment or theme park access, then you've got to put the theme parks open as much as you can. That's part of the business. That's, that's the cost of doing business in that case. And by the way, one other thing that I wanted to mention here, I've uh, read a number of online comments where people are, you know, oh, just, you know, we're safe, we're good. You know, why do we have this extreme social distancing? Just reopen everything and let people go back. Well, two problems there. One is that that's just not safe and you're going to, you will cause an outbreak, at least among cast members. And two, um, the, uh, the reality is that you don't have the cast member population because you've laid off so many people. So you can't go back and start rehiring people and reopening things and changing the, uh, the number of people that you allow in the park at this time. That'll happen at some point in the future, but for now, it won't. Now, intriguingly, she has sort of an answer. It's not really an answer, but it's, it's sort of a, a direction. And uh, she says, she suggests this as an option. But I will say where the pressure can come from is inside the business community where there are people thinking differently about this. And, you know, there is such a thing as peer pressure. And I think that some of that could really make a difference. You know, they have to get some courage about calling each other out. They're not right now. They're a little chicken about that. And there's mm. like this honor, honor among thieves or why sharks never eat other sharks um, mm. kind of thing. But there are business executives who are starting to speak up about different ways to handle this. I would say like right now today, one thing Disney can do is take half of the C-suite bonuses from this year, half of them, and put them in, in a cast member relief program today. They could do that. Have you figured out how much money that would be? Well, if it's if it's the hundred and it was last year, I don't see it going down much. I mean, the share prices are high, so that's what they live, eat, and breathe. So, um, you know, if if it's around a hundred, they would put fifty million dollars in a cast member relief fund, and then make sure people are eating and living in houses and so forth. So, I, you know, why why wouldn't they do that? Why wouldn't they do that? And yeah. Corporate philosophies have to change, and there has to be corporate peer pressure for things to change. Now, one of the interesting things, I work for a company that's a technology-based company, and um, I'm watching technology-based companies change their, their paradigms. You hear these companies saying, we've, we've moved to work at home. We're doing things differently. We don't plan to come back to the office at any point in the future. I heard the CEO of PayPal talking about how he sees a model where you know people will only come to the office maybe two days a week in the future when they do get back to the office, and he has no intention of bringing anyone back to the office before, say, June of next year. So when you look at that, you realize that these companies are all lining themselves up to say, we need to change the way we do business because we need to rethink our business strategy in order to be successful. And so in looking at these companies, you realize that Disney has an opportunity to do something similar where they could change their business philosophy in some way, whatever that is. You know, maybe the theme park business changes and evolves. We've talked about the fact that they're planning to leave the, uh, the reservation system in place, that they're doing more things around some of, the, uh, some of the ways that you visit the parks. I think there's more strategy coming. When they reintroduce FastPass Plus or FastPass 5.0, whatever they're going to call it, it's going to be different, I suspect, because they realize that the corporate 
corporate philosophy has to change. You want to allow as many guests into the park as you can, but how do you do that? And now we get to something interesting that she talks about, this history of her grandfather and Walt and how they worked together and how they did sacrifice everything. And I wanted to just put this in the context of the podcast because she talks about how, you know, the current regime does not risk everything. They just, you know, they're just taking money out of the company and they're providing yeah, stewardship for it, but they're not risking everything. So she talks a little bit about why it was important uh, that her grandfather, Roy, and uh, Walt work so well together and talks a little bit about their relationship. Jiminy Cricket reminded me so much of my grandfather. He talked exactly like my golly gee willikers grandfather. And, <laughs> and I just... <laughs> And, and and if you look at the dynamic between Walt and Roy, they were totally it and super ego. That's how they built the company, right? Walt would go off and do some maniac thing, and my grandfather would figure out where the money was going to come right. from and how to establish a copyright, how to trademark that and make sure the, the trademark guy. law was working. Yeah, the one who was, like, counting the numbers. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, it was the Disney Brothers studio at the beginning, and he didn't want that. He wanted Walt to get all the credit because he was the creative genius. But there was my grandfather with, like, the, the adding machine and the visor over, you know, his eyes and the garter on his sleeve, you know, figuring out how to get it done and figuring mm-hmm. out how to make sure it wouldn't, wouldn't die in the, you know, die on the vine. And, and legacy, like, that yeah. guy's really important. And, and what happened there was, you know, the way um, siblings can um, – sing harmonies in a really <laughs> very important way. They had an, they had a nice kind of yin-yang thing going on. So I found the whole thing pretty interesting. I found her and the entirety of her uh, podcast interview to be really kind of compelling. Um, for me, it spoke to me because I, she, she and I think similarly about the Disney company. I'm very big on its history and what they did right and how they got here. You know, the legacy that was left behind, I think, is one of the most critical things to making the Walt Disney Company successful. Look, I'm not a theme park kind of guy in general. I'm not, I'm not a fan of, you know, I don't go to Universal. I don't go to Six Flags. I'm not, I'm not into the roller coasters. I'm not into the things. The thing that makes Disney interesting is because they created something that's an immersive sort of experience. It's, it's more experiential than it is about the thrills. And there's something really neat about that and the fact that there's a history to it and there's a lot of things that uh, you can talk about that kind of fit into the history, that's what makes it compelling to me. And the fact that there's still this evidence of the history that's still there is is really pretty neat. Now, as they get away from that, who knows? Will it be the same? I I don't know. Or do they even get away from it or do they find their way again? I, I just don't know. I found it interesting. So I just wanted to share with you some of her thoughts and um, kind of give my, my perspective on it because I thought it was really pretty neat. Again, her podcast, it's in two parts over on KCRW's The Business Podcast. And um, I'll put a link to it below so you can uh, go and um, go and experience it yourself. Um, I highly recommend checking out the whole, the entirety of The Business Podcast and uh, listening to Abigail's whole interview is pretty cool. It's, it's more... It's more interactive. She talks with people. It's more like a, an interview that I would do in that sense where we're just having a conversation about things. It's, it's less formal. And um, the questions that she's being asked allow her to go off and talk about things in a more detailed manner if she wants to. Um, and I find that kind of neat. Now, <clears throat> Abigail also has a podcast that she does, and uh, it's actually called 
All Ears with Abigail Disney, and it's available in all the major uh, platforms and so forth. It's it's pretty interesting. It's um a little. It's not about Disney. It's about uh, everything that uh, in the world. She talks to interesting people. She finds interesting people that she has connections with, and she talks to them. Um, and again, it's a conversational style thing where she's sitting down and talking to somebody about some world issue or some issue that's going on, just something interesting. And um, they're interesting people having a conversation about topics. You know, it doesn't really matter what it is. And it ranges in a lot of ways. If you look at the um, the podcast list, there's a lot of interesting uh, content there. Nothing specific where you go, wow, you know, it's about that. No, it's about anything and everything. Anything goes. She's all ears because she's listening to people talk about interesting topics. I find Abigail Disney to be a very interesting person. And um, I, I think she's worth listening to uh, in general. So... I just wanted to provide some context for you uh, and give you some thoughts, some food for thought on sort of the Disney company and some of the directions that it's taking. And good, bad, or indifferent, I don't know. But, you know, we'll continue to do this podcast and uh, talk about Disney, you know, and we'll see where the, uh, where the future takes us. Who knows? With the vaccine coming and whatever, whatever else is happening, who knows what will happen next. But for now, we'll just kind of hang in there and, you know, kind of wait it out. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. In the second part of her interview, Abigail talked about something interesting. It was an event that happened in the 1980s, early 1990s, excuse me, when Michael Eisner was the CEO of the company. And... Uh, Roy Disney, her father, had gone ahead and uh, basically caused an insurrection. He had wanted to have a vote of no confidence against Michael Eisner. And the cast members at the time were really uh, up in arms about a lot of things. And they were having this big meeting up in Philadelphia. And uh, it was a, the, one of the corporate shareholder meetings. And Abigail talks about that at length in the, in the podcast. But there's this one piece that kind of stuck with me. I have to go all sort of woo-woo sounding, but it's true. There, the people invest a lot of their own hearts and their families into this company. And so when it feels like it's going off the rails, the hurt that's felt, uh, you know, not just for employees, but, but the people who really love the company is huge. And then there's the fact that, you know, it's a really widely held stock. It's such an interesting stock. Yes. So basically what she's telling us is that Sometimes you find your passion. You find that thing that you are the most passionate about. And it, it, hurt, it, it basically touches you in some way, and whether your heart or your soul or whatever you want to call it. Somehow it touches you and it, it impacts you. And you become so emotionally connected to it that you actually want to cause change as a result of it. And that's essentially what happened at that shareholder meeting, that there were so many people that felt so strongly and so passionately about Disney and the way things were going, that they wanted to make a change. And change did come. It took a little longer, but it did come. And it got me to thinking about one little spark and sort of the idea of how we as individuals and a group can foment change. We can make changes. We can make things happen in the world. We have the opportunity and the right and the privilege of making things happen because we're passionate about them, because we really believe in them. So take the causes that you believe in, all the things that you think of, whether it's something related to Disney or whether it's something related to social justice or whatever it is, 
and go after it and be passionate about it. Find a group, a community, a something where you can be a part of it and actually help affect change in some way. There are opportunities in life where we can stand up as individuals and band together and actually make something happen. Right now, my big thing is that I really am kind of passionate about what Disney is doing right and wrong at this point. They've got some things they've got that they're doing. Some of them are good. Some of them maybe not so good. And I have to say that Abigail Disney's sort of perspective on the Disney company really hit home with me because it's kind of reflective of what I'm feeling to a large degree. I'm conflicted about the whole company at this point, and I'm not sure what to take away from it. So I hope that they make change. My brethren, the people that I consider my friends, my coworkers, the people that you know I, I worked with, the people that I respect every time I go to the parks, they're the ones being affected by all of this stuff, and the corporate executives aren't. So, you know, it's time for another change. It's time for something to happen, and that's why I'm doing this sort of thing where I'm not being involved. I'm not going to Disney right now. Yeah, I'm. St- I want to go. I want to have the magic, but I just don't feel it's the right time right now for a lot of reasons. Not just about what's uh, happening with the pandemic. There's a lot of reasons why I don't think it's the right time, and I think it is time to make a change again. What that change is and what it will look like and how we can influence it is really going to say a lot. So I encourage you to find your passion, to find the thing that you're really interested in, that you want to talk about in some way, that you, want, feel, that you feel strongly about, that you want to make a change to. And again, whatever that is, find that passion, go with it and make a change. That's all I've got to say about that. And you know, for what it's worth, I really hope that I'm having been a big downer on all of this stuff and brought too much to the table as far as Abigail Disney goes and sort of her perspective. That's not my intent. My intent is to help you to think about things a little differently and consider the possibility that there's better things ahead and we can do more and we can change the world in some way. That's what One Little Spark is all about. Find the thing that you're passionate about. Do your part. Hey, by the way, there's an election coming up in Georgia. If you live in Georgia, don't forget about it. It's coming up on January 5th. And uh, you need to get out there and vote. If you know somebody who lives in Georgia, remind them to get out and vote. It's important. It's important for all of us in our own future. So get out there and vote and uh, do the right thing. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there... Please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil 
Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.